Hello and welcome to Fusion Health Radio, Episode 8, Is Adrenal Fatigue Real? I'm Anthony Santa today in conversation with Dr. Michael Smith. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Fusion Health Radio is the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast, the place where you can learn to have a life of abundant health. Today's topic is adrenal fatigue, something that I've heard of in the past, something that I may have even suffered with myself, but I don't really know what it's all about. Michael does. So to recap last episode, episode seven, we talked about your muscles are amazing. Uh, do you want to give us a quick rundown as to what we talked about? Yeah, so uh, basically I think if you were to think of your muscles, you know, in the, in the sense of they're a big part of your body, and then take the perspective that your muscles are actually an internal organ and they function to regulate things like your immune system to some degree, but mainly they really regulate blood sugar and stress hormones and, you know, growth hormones and stuff like that. We got into sort of the structure and function of muscles uh, more specifically around mitochondria and different kinds of fast twitch, slow twitch fibers, you know, whether or not resistance training is better than cardio and if, you know, how to, how to decide that for yourself in the sense of how much, uh, say, weightlifting you might want to do compared to running. Um, big subject, but um, yeah, really great comments so far for people who are really excited to, you know, be certain about how to get the most out of their muscles. Yeah, it was uh, definitely a kick in the pants uh, for me. <laughs> Listening through and editing that podcast was like, oh, damn it, I need to do something with this uh, and something I should talk to you about after today's podcast. Um, but here we are today, uh, episode eight, uh, talking about adrenal fatigue. Now, um, the title of the podcast is Adrenal Fatigue Real. So you're taking a pretty uh, ballsy punch at people who actually have or believe they have adrenal fatigue. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that's kind of cool because I like to question things that I learn about health. Um, what can you say about adrenal fatigue that would explain it to somebody like me who doesn't even know anything about adrenal fatigue? Well, I, I think I just want to address the, the choice of the title, like in asking, is adrenal fatigue real? You know, in a sense, it, is it? Because it might not be, but, you know, it, it, really, it really is. I just want to take it farther than the, the usual conversation because as we're going to get into the subject... Um, it's just too easy to focus on the simple hormones and look, uh, leave behind the rest of what happens to the body. So I've experienced adrenal fatigue in my life in the past, um, and it's basically too much stress, too much work, uh, even too much exercise, uh, not enough sleep, uh, probably too much dysregulation with blood sugar and things like that where eventually the, what we call homeostasis, or your body's ability to return to normal, happy, you know, middle-of-the-road function, just gradually wears out. When I think of adrenal fatigue, or when I hear that name, um, adrenaline comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the connection? Is there one? Yeah, so <laughs> the terminology is tricky. Um, in, in some parts of the world, we use the term adrenaline for a certain group of hormones that are really the short-term get-up-and-go fight-or-flight hormones. Okay. Right? Uh, the word adrenaline just means from ad, uh, adrenal, which is above your uh, kidneys, which is where your adrenal glands sit. So just 
it's a funny thing, but now we've got this idea of adrenaline. Uh, in other parts of the world, we use words like uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine to talk about those specific hormones because, and, and those actually function as neurotransmitters too. And again, they're like the uh, super high potency gas that your body can use to suddenly go from sitting around, you know, scratching your toes to running down the street trying to save your friend. Okay, so um, that's the technical aspect of. Yeah, well, that, that's technical part one. Technical part two is there's a slow burning fuel that we use called cortisol and other uh, hormones similar to that. Um, that basically they're called glucocorticoids and gluco meaning glucose, um, corticoid meaning the steroid that comes out of the um, sort of protective membrane or cortex of your adrenal. So it's it's fun to play with the terminology because it's it's almost like it's a self. Uh, um, uh, that's the word I'm looking for, a self-defining description because it actually just says something really mechanical. <laughs> and then we can think, oh, that's so complicated. It's like, no, it just means the hormone that comes out of here that does that. So again, the glucocorticoids basically are hormones that force your body to release uh, uh, um, blood sugar, although it's a little more complicated than that. And that gives your body the fuel and energy to keep uh, moving around um, over the long term. So, you know, if you're going for a 40-minute run, the epinephrine or epinephrine or adrenalines are going to get you through the first two minutes. But after that, it's all about cortisol. Okay. Um, so, as you described it initially, adrenal fatigue is um, a host of different things. Exhaustion, tiredness, and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and this is going to sound like a really dumb question, but why are we talking about adrenal fatigue? Why is it so important to understand what it even is? Well, I mean, I guess from a functional medicine point of view, it's almost always the first uh, lab test we run with people who have any kind of chronic uh, degenerative autoimmune condition because being sick is stressful, um, not only in the sense of the subjective personal experience, but the kind of physiological chaos of chronic inflammation or chronic immune system dysfunction and things like that uh, basically are telling your central nervous system and a certain part of your brain that you're in danger. And then you're going to be running on more fight or flight hormones and that actually creates this weird feedback loop where part of your immune system gets sort of sluggish uh, in fact your actual lymph nodes can atrophy or shrink and part of your immune system becomes more aggressive in the sense of more reactive inflammatory responses so you know so this is this evil feedback loop you know where you know now i'm a little bit sicker and my body's more stressed due to the illness and the stress of that makes the illness progress more rapidly in a way it's like perfectly common sense like we all kind of just i think intuitively get well yeah the sicker you get the sicker you're going to get unless something drastically turns around mm. and i've seen people go like 15 years grinding along uh you know within the stages of adrenal uh fatigue um, before it actually turns into something that actually makes them sit down and you know rearrange their life because at some point <laughs> you really have to change everything pretty much from the inside out there's uh, an analogy that I came up with uh, years ago, uh, being comfortable with the, with the limp. Um, mm -hmm. Picture yourself, you're on a hike, and you get a stone in your shoe, and you're too lazy to pick the stone out of your, like the stones on the inside of the shoe, mm -hmm. and you're walking around and it hurts your foot, and eventually, you know, you just give up and just keep walking. You just get comfortable with the limp, you know. Um, a friend of mine did that at, at a college, which is where I came up with the idea, and after uh, a very long day of, uh, of study and work and, and everything you know it was like around eight o'clock at night and he pulled off his shoe and his entire sock was all bloodied mm -hmm. because the nail that was in the heel of his shoe was stabbing it at the bottom of his foot the whole day long 
so it was like Swiss cheese. Oh. <laughs> but he was so caught up in what he was doing that he got comfortable with the limp. Yeah, actually, in, in functional medicine, we use the term "walking wounded." Yeah, you know, because there's a lot of people you can, you know, from a, if you're a fairly well trained clinician, you know, you could be sitting there in your favorite bistro, and you can watch people go by, and you can basically see, you know, how bad their cholesterol is, or how uh, weakened their kidneys are, or uh, whether or not they have signs of certain kinds of neural degeneration and, and things like that, and. Um, <clears throat> One of my mentors, who does a lot of traveling and teaching, uh, spends a lot of his time in airports, and he, he just, like, and especially in the U.S., he's just, like, hanging his head going, man, like, the number of people he sees walking past him in airports so that he can, you know, at a distance see have chronic, you know, health problems is, is startlingly high. Mm. So it sounds like adrenal fatigue, or identifying it, as, as you mentioned, I mean, it's one of the first uh, diagnostic tools you, you look to identify what's going on with people, it sounds like that's um, pervasive. Yeah. Well, if you're if you're chronically ill, that's probably a part of um, the complex of things that are out of balance and need to be brought back into balance. Right. So um, I guess you've talked a little bit about what it actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's the what's the mechanics behind it? I mean, how how do I as a as an individual uh, know that I have adrenal fatigue, or is that something I should even you know, put my wheelhouse up to be worried about. Well, I think, you know, when it comes to trying to self-diagnose with something like that, you know, you could go online and, and look at, you know, uh, symptoms of adrenal uh, fatigue or adrenal exhaustion. And, um, and intuitively, obviously, you're going to be tired and not sleeping very well and emotionally all over the place and uh, very likely to have chronic digestive problems, uh, have either hyper or hypo, like too much or not enough immune system function. Um, but I don't really have a, I'm not comfortable saying, well, if you have these five things, ta-da, you know, you have adrenal fatigue. It's, I think what I'd like to do with this conversation is to give people a sense of kind of how the whole system works. And as we go through that, uh, and the process of actually going from normal function to actual like clinical adrenal fatigue, um, the listeners, I think, will have a better idea of if that fits with their experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and more importantly, the reason why I really wanted to have this conversation again is to take people's uh, naturally kind of, you know, it's like we hold a flashlight to things we're worried about. And sometimes that flashlight helps us see the details, but sometimes the narrow beam of the flashlight um, sort of um, makes it very difficult to see the bigger picture. And when it comes to something, and, and as we get into the details, as complex as this, you know, I've seen lots and lots of people get their tests come back, oh yeah, I've got adrenal fatigue, and they focus on the supplements for their adrenal glands, and they don't get better. And it's because their flashlight wasn't pointing at where the actual process of adrenal fatigue was happening in their body, because there's a lot more going on than the little tiny glands sitting on your kidneys. <laughs> okay, well, so then that begs the question, how does adrenal fatigue happen? So we're just going to need to look a little bit at the the mechanism of how your body communicates uh, through that process, because uh, that will bring us back to some really powerful opportunities to, to do more about it. And then I'll just walk people through sort of the classic you know, adrenal fatigue process. So the first thing anyone would really need to be aware of is something called your HPA axis, which is your hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. And so the hypothalamus and pituitary are two different glands in your brain that basically run 
honestly almost everything else in your body on, on a certain degree um, or a certain level but uh, without having a, a chalkboard to like get into all kinds of detail that way um, uh, as we get into the podcast I'm getting more familiar with the thing that's going to have to be more about imagery than, than detail so the imagery I use when I'm talking about adrenal function is imagine that your adrenal glands are a horse and your pituitary gland is a cowboy on the horse and that somebody in the uh, I guess hunting lodge I guess I grew up in hunting lodge so I think of this but uh, some big cattle ranch maybe that's better imagery <laughs> and there's somebody in the house with a walkie-talkie that's talking to the cowboy so the person in, in the cattle ranch uh, with the, the um, radio that's your hypothalamus and it sends messages to the cowboy and we'll come back to those messages later and the cowboy being your uh, uh, pituitary gland um, basically takes its little pokey spurs and says okay adrenal glands get up and or giddy up I guess and, and, and go and um, there's all kinds of things that can happen between uh, those three places in your body but we'll come back to those so let's say that your uh, cattle ranch radio person has the call button stuck on <laughs> in the sense of keep doing everything I tell you and the cowboy's running around left right and everywhere trying to get everything done in the sense your uh, uh, pituitary gland is doing everything it's supposed to do and that poor horse is getting run you know way past its uh, um, safety limits I guess you would say of, uh, of what it's supposed to do so life is stressful lots going on you're you're not recovering uh, from whatever stress you're, you're having and this puts people into what we call stage one of, of adrenal uh, fatigue and stage one is actually uh, your body's natural ability to produce more uh, adrenaline and cortisol so you can get through busy busy days like your friend you know, walking over his rock on issue uh, trying to get through exams you know and it's just like it's having more and more of those days in a row your body naturally says, okay, well, just get into the habit of having this much more adrenaline and cortisol in your blood all day, every day. So if you were to look at a, a, a person's lab results, you would see those numbers being higher and then higher and then higher and high enough that now that's higher than we would consider safe. And that high point becomes the sort of baseline. Uh, well, your body's just chugging out as much of these sort of fight or flight hormones as it can but it's on, a, on an upswinging trajectory, like, you know, if you're surfing and you're going up the wave, up, up, up. And at a certain point of going up that wave, now you've gone to a place that's medically bad for you, mm. right? Because you're basically going to be walking around full of uh, a really intense physical agitation, anxiety. Again, your immune system is now being dysregulated. Inflammatory processes are clinically being, you know, thrown out of uh, whack in a way that could become by itself dangerous. Um, rarely do you see people come in and get lab testing at that point because their life is too busy. You know, uh, if I had time to go to the doctor, I'd have time to you know take a nap. So later, <laughs> so uh, eventually your body runs into you know what's called uh, you know, a finite capacity. You can only produce so much of the same molecules over and over again before everything that makes those molecules just runs out of what we you metaphorically call money in the bank. So now you're seeing the person you know, who's gotten to the top of their particular wave of the ability to produce these hormones is now producing less hormones. And it's not often that they're producing less hormones because they've suddenly taken up meditation. It's more likely that they're producing less hormones every day because they can't produce as much as they want to or used to. 
right? So gradually over time, they go into stage two of adrenal fatigue, which we call uh, adrenal resistance, or pardon me, adrenal overstrain. And an overstrain basically means you've used something in your body to the point of straining it, and then you're going to use it again before it's had a chance to return to normal. Just like if you have a repetitive strain from doing bicep curls or something. So when you hit that state of overstrain, again, your body's trying to produce enough of the hormone, but it's run out of the money in the bank to do so. Right? And there's all kinds of places that that can happen. And if you keep living that busy, <coughs> hopefully exciting life of lots to do, um, eventually you're going to move into what we call stage three. Now, there's a few different schools of thought where there's either three stages or four stages or seven stages. Uh, I, I follow the school of four stages plus outliers, uh, which, you know, we'll get more into. But um, some people just say there's three, some people say there's four or seven. So if you're hitting stage three in the model I work with, now you're getting to a place where you are uh, continuing to live a very stressful life. You can't produce enough of these hormones uh, to, do, to actually even hit baseline numbers anymore. And now you're running around on the amount of adrenaline and cortisol that we would consider sub-optimal or even uh, clinically low, low enough that you're actually going to see problems um, in, the, in the long term because obviously these are essential hormones to just function uh, throughout the day. That would be um, running on fumes? Yeah, yeah in, in, in a sense. I mean, the numbers are basically, if your cortisol levels are above about 42, that's really, really high. So a person starts with, say, 30, they go through stage one, get above 40, maybe up to 50, run out of gas, and then they start the numbers start coming down from 50 to 40 to 30, and then they start dropping down below like 23, which is considered clinically a bad number. Like if you're below 23, 22, 20, 19, and then we're like, uh-oh, this is starting to look like a metabolic problem. Uh, with, again, there's lots of other things that are connected to the system. It's sort of one of the, call it your root chakra, if you will, of hormones. And um, when it's starting to get depleted, everything else in your body is starting to create secondary kind of adaptations to make up for that. So now your numbers are going down. But there's this amazing thing in stage three we call adaptive resistance where, again, your body's using other systems to make up for that. So your insulin metabolism might, you know, change its behavior. Uh, very often your thyroid metabolism is making up for low adrenal function for a while. So we start to see, and it's kind of like a, a, not one big wave, but a bunch of little waves where you're kind of going, you know, oh, now I'm down to 19. So I think I have adrenal fatigue. Three days later, you're back about 25. So no, maybe I don't, you know, and then it goes back and forth and back and forth. And again, I've seen people spend 10, 15 years in stage three, you know, okay, I'm taking the weekend off. Okay, I'm doing fine. Okay, I'll do that extra job too, because <laughs> now I've had a weekend off. And, you know, we just, it, and honestly, Anthony, it astounds me as a human being, as a clinician, um, that human beings don't just like explode or like fall over or burn out so much faster than we do. I mean, we're, we're amazingly adaptable. Maybe we could just say we're stubborn, but it's amazing uh, what I've seen people go through before their bodies actually start to break down, you know, which is amazing, but also in a way kind of dangerous because we can get pretty far into the, the pit of various processes because, again, the, the adaptive resistance thing being your body using uh, um, adaptations of other systems to try and keep you know, a main system working. I think there's that old saying of going to borrow from Peter to pay Paul kind of thing. The body's pretty resilient. Pretty resilient. But uh, it takes a lot for it to actually up and quit 
Yeah. But it can do that over a number of years, is what you're saying. Yeah. My, I mean, the average is about 15 years before going from you know, that high point of the wave where your adrenals were sort of off the scale high and uh, dropping down to where you're now kind of muttering uh, between clinically too low and clinically barely, you know, uh, not, not a dangerously low. And that wave just sort of fumbles along depending on your age and, I guess, the adaptability of the rest of your health until eventually the numbers start to drop. And the numbers are again representing your body's physiological ability to produce epinephrine, norepinephrine, or adrenaline, and cortisol. And, you know, those are the simple ones. There's more hormones involved, but uh, that's clinically going to present itself as adrenal fatigue or exhaustion. And in my experience, um, it's about two years of very, very careful lifestyle uh, choices and changes and supplements and you know, other things for most people to go from that stage for clinical adrenal uh, exhaustion or fatigue to get back, you know, close to where that part of your physiology is, you know, consistently with the normal numbers, uh, and more importantly, you actually feel better all the time. <laughs> well, if if you look at how, um, I mean, the way I do work during the week, um, the way I've done work uh, professionally over the, the course of my career, you know, there's been times when I've had a hell of a lot to do, and there's been times when I've got a hell of a lot done, and times when I've been sitting around twiddling my thumbs. Um, how am I trying to say this? If, um, if adrenal fatigue is such a complex thing, um, what does that actually look like on an everyday basis? I mean, there's lots of people that I know who do a lot of stuff. Do they have adrenal fatigue? Like, what, the, how do you sort of identify that from, I guess, the not the clinical perspective of doing tests, but mm -hmm. if I'm sort of living my life, what are signs that are going to tell me that maybe I'm uh, tapped out? Well, I mean, the most common things you're going to see is obviously less energy, mm. you know, muscle fatigue. Uh, poor recovery from exercise. Uh, sleep is going to be quite likely all over the place. Um, for some people, um, when they are under chronic stress, they lose weight. Other people under chronic stress gain weight. So that's usually determined by the kind of history you have around exercise. Um, so maybe I'll just get into that detail a bit because I think that's poignant for some people. So Cortisol, again, is a glucocorticoid, which means it helps your body produce or release a lot of glycogen, and you know, now you have more blood sugar. And if you have a lot of blood sugar and you're not burning it up through movement, you know, uh, you know, you're going to have the blood sugar for your brain too. But if you're just sitting in a chair, you know, doing, I don't know, other people's taxes or something like that, uh, and you've got all this blood sugar swimming around your body, your, your body naturally has to uh, increase your insulin. And then your insulin tries to get rid of the blood sugar. And if you're not doing it through movement, then it's going to get turned into the triglyceride and turned into that lovely stuff that builds between your belly button and your back in midlife, the battle of the bulge. Uh, whereas if you're a person who's got a lot of, um, uh, do a lot of exercise and you have a better muscle metabolism, you know, go back and listen to the previous podcast if you want to understand all of that, uh, then... Uh, you can move that blood sugar out of, out of, blood sugar out of your blood uh, with the insulin through your muscles, and it won't turn into fat. So some people have the you know the lottery win of um, you know I'm losing weight, which is bad because you're catabolic, but uh, it's 
and our society's sort of, you know, present obsession, it's better than gaining weight. <laughs> Medically, it's bad either way. Uh, one thing you're going to see with sleep, besides being harder to fall asleep and more restless, is a lot of people are going to be waking up almost exactly at 3 o'clock in the morning. And that's one of the top probably 10, 15 questions I ask anybody that comes into my office is, do you wake up at 3 in the morning? And they're like, yes. And it's either because of cortisol resistance or insulin resistance, uh, which are sort of uh, very tied together again with respect to um, if you're constantly expressing cortisol, eventually the receptors are going to say, I don't think you're sure you're doing what you think you're doing. And if you're constantly expressing insulin, the receptors will do the same thing and they'll say, no, I don't think you think you know what you're doing. And then the receptors basically become resistant to the hormone. And what happens around three in the morning is you get hypoglycemic enough that your body or your brain kicks the horse of your adrenal glands back into gear and you wake up at three in the morning as if it's nine o'clock in the morning, ready to like, you know, get to work. Ready to face the day. So you talked a little bit about um, being catabolic. Mm -hmm. um, is that is that something that you can easily identify? Like how, um, how do you actually diagnose the whole thing of, of adrenal fatigue? Um, again, we usually use lab tests. I mean, there's questionnaires that you can take um, and subjectively assess your overall health around that. Um, but, uh, and again, catabolic means you're just using up yourself faster than you're building yourself. So, you know, when it comes to um, fun terminology um, and making things easier to remember, we either have steroids that are anabolic, which make you grow, or catabolic, which makes you break yourself down. Right, and they, you know, they take anabolic steroids if you want to cheat as an athlete, right? Um, the word catabolic, I think, is worth bringing up in the conversation because you can also become catabolic to hormones. Usually when we see someone wasting away with a disease, we're watching their muscles disappear, right? And that's, you know, the scary kind of version of catabolic in the sense of disease. But, um, again, you can become catabolic to any tissue in your body. So, if I was to um, bring in, I guess, imagery that would hopefully help play this out. Uh, if you live in a modern house, you have plumbing, and the plumbing has to have water coming into your house from somewhere. So that main line of water coming into your, uh, into your house, we're going to say is cholesterol. Right? And cholesterol is the substrate for every other hormone in your body. Okay. Right? So if we follow the, the plumbing, um, from that main cholesterol line, it's going to turn into, let's say, another main plumbing line in your body. It's going to call, call that pregnenolone, which is kind of a, a grandpa or grandfather hormone for a lot of other hormones. And then the plumbing splits, right? So from the pregnenolone tap, we're going to have some plumbing that's going to produce uh, a little faucet called uh, progesterone. And that faucet will turn into cortisol, right? Because they're all kind of interconnected that way. On the other side of things, you're going to have a hormone called DHEA, and that turns into uh, testosterone and the three estrogens and, and some other things. And that's about the simplest way to look at this, because there's, you know, there's so many other little bits of plumbing going on in the background that, um, um, sort of at the PhD level, that may make the thing absurdly complicated. It's so amazing what we can learn and know today with lab testing and microscopes, but every time we get deeper into the how things interact with each other, 
um, opportunities for things to go wrong or opportunities to repair them then you know kind of come to our attention but I'd, I'd just like to think of you about that that level of complication you've got cortisol or sorry pardon me you've got cholesterol, cholesterol and that turns into this big grandpa pee hormone that turns into the either uh, sort of the um, a sort of short-term repair kind of hormones like progesterone and, and cortisol and then sort of the longer-term uh, more rhythmic sex hormones like testosterone and estrogens and things like that. So if we turn on the tap of cortisol and leave it running all day it's going to eventually drain the tap or the sink of progesterone and it's going to start creating signals and pathways in your body that are going to tell uh, pregnant alone to start putting a lot more plumbing uh, extra pipes if you will towards this side of, of your hormonal pathways because clearly for whatever reason your physiology assumes your brain knows what it's doing with your life <laughs> and it says okay well if you think we need more plumbing going over here to the the cortisol tap we'll do that and again you only get so much cholesterol from your diet in fact you can't even get enough cholesterol from your diet your liver has to produce you know, more than uh, you would ever get from your diet every day just to keep you alive. But if that's your city water supply and now you've got plumbing taking things over here and you can only get so much water from the city a day, let's say it's on a meter and, you know, it's, it's a drought, you're only allowed, you know, so much a day, you're not going to be having enough to produce the estrogens and testosterone and DHEA that you need to actually govern all of the amazing things that those hormones govern. And they're way, way more... Uh, important in long-term physiological processes. Again, progesterone uh, helps certain tissues grow and, and repair themselves. And cortisol, again, is that fight-or-flight thing. It's not meant... I don't think we're... It's clear to me, anyway, that we haven't evolved to be under a lot of stress for a long time. And I think that's a fairly industrial-age kind of new thing. So, again, when our... We, we force our hormones to keep going to one side of, of, of the plumbing of your, your physiology, the other side starts to wear out. But more importantly, when you build those pathways, put in the new pipes, your body is just now self-programmed to always produce that much cortisol until you can't. Right? And that's what we do call being hormonally catabolic, because you're stealing from DHEA and your other hormones to just maintain, I don't know, your, your busy lifestyle. Body's pretty complicated. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, it, it, the leg bone connected to the knee bone, it's the, the, the <laughs> hormone connected to the hormone. Um, the way everything sort of ties in together is, um, I mean, it's almost kind of beautiful to see the way that the body does it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so if that's how it, um, how it manifests in the body, or mm -hmm. one of the ways, I mean, catabolic, um, what can people do? I mean, it sounds really complicated, Yep. The way you just, the way you describe it is this like, you know, do I hear the dun 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 kind of music that goes with this? Is this like really dramatic? Oh my god, I've got to do something about this or else. Well, I think it's nice to just I don't know pull over the podcast for a minute and, and recognize that anybody in this situation has gotten into that uh, situation of being catabolic and you know all of the, the disarray that happens to the rest of your physiology. I mean, we're still just talking about hormones, not all the things that hormones do when they're out of whack. <laughs> right. Um, it's been my experience that when a person's in this situation, um, 
Obviously, doing what we can to improve their baseline physiology makes sense. But more often than not, the first thing you need to do is have a real sit-down with people about the fact that, you know, there's something about your mindset, your psychology, your upbringing, your, uh, I don't know, family situation or whatever that's led you to believe that this actually is a functional adaptive approach. And uh, clearly at some point for anyone that's going to burn out and not be true. But the reason I bring this up is, is when you start getting people uh, to change their, you know, physical, physiological lifestyle and you know, diet and supplements and stuff, as soon as they get the energy back to keep, you know, to actually feel a little bit better, more often than not, they're going to go and burn themselves up even worse because now they have all the tissue support of a better diet and, you know, supplements and things like that. So it's um, really important to just have that little sit down with people and say, we, we kind of have to like pay off this huge overdraft and I'm, I'm, I'm nervous to give you a bunch of money right now because I'm afraid you're just going to go off and, you know, gamble with it. Yeah, I would, I would think that that's probably how, uh, I mean, I, I know I've done that in my own life mm -hmm. with work and stuff. It's like I got uh, a thousand and one things to do and all of a sudden two of them aren't there anymore and it's like, oh, hey, I got room to do something and then it becomes a thousand and ten things to do. Yeah. So I usually try and get people to begin the conversation really just about are you aware that your lifestyle, you know, the environment in which you're, you know, doing your, your, your thing uh, has to change, you know, and that, ha that change is going to be somewhat external, but it's going to have to be internal as well. You're going to have to question whatever uh, conditioning you have that got you this far, because otherwise you'll just end up here again and in a more, more, much more complex way because now you're burning out not only your own endogenous hormones but the synthetic things and support cofactors and everything else because I mean it, it, it's kind of like giving someone uh, a license to do more damage to their body by just saying oh well we'll just support your adrenal glands and off you go so this isn't just about taking vitamins uh, well again I wouldn't want to give someone a bunch of whatever vitamins might be appropriate if I'm quite concerned that they're just going to make themselves sicker yeah well i mean and i think that maybe speaks to the idea that this is the the health lifestyle and mindset podcast yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, so um can you talk more about that i mean the, the, i guess the um we've been talking kind of geeky here about hormones and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff around what to do around adrenal fatigue what else is there that we could be doing outside of i guess the interior <laughs> body kind of function stuff I think the hardest part for people is to experience a sense of vitality and then let it stay inside their belly. Mm. Or to create this space for some recovery, some respite, maybe even some meditation, and to allow it to be uh, kind of a, a time of emptiness than a time of, you know, focus. Because, you know, you could be sitting there and from across the room it might look like you're in meditation but if your conditioning is to be like a workaholic you've got a gerbil running around inside your head with a wheel with a calculator solving problems you know all over the place while you're you are attempting to meditate so it's really just going okay I've, I've i've learned in some way in my life to misuse my resiliency and my adaptability and my resources 
and I just need to get into the conversation with myself and maybe my spouse or my kids or my boss or you know other people that are now used to me being the go-to person to get everything done that that may be not the case anymore mm-hmm. I mean I was, I was just reflecting on one patient who's uh, about as far as he can get into this and she, in her case she's taken her thyroid uh, metabolism her immune system uh, even I would say some degenerative stuff in, in her brain but her conditioning is I'm you know the wife of the house I have to do all of the cleaning and the cooking and the shopping and the this and the that um, and this is a person with chronic fatigue syndrome fibromyalgia and, and some other pretty serious concerns and you know I actually had to sit down with her and her husband and just say I'm sorry to say this sir but you are now going to take up everything she's been doing in the house well, she's going to basically lie on the couch for four or five days to just get even the inkling possibility that her physiology is going to, you know, it's almost like a shy mouse sneaking around a corner. Like, is, is this real? And we're actually going to stay still long enough to get something started in, in terms of repair. And again, this is people 15, 20 years into damaging themselves. So the, the real initial commitment is, can, can you actually rest? And if someone... Um if someone decides to rest, mm-hmm. two questions here. If someone decides to rest, does the body pick up on that? Yeah. Uh, Scalia says no. Yes or no? Yes, but you have to do it every day for at least 20 minutes. And okay. rest means you're horizontal. Right. Well, so that was the second question. Okay. That was, so what does rest look like? Rest looks like you coming home, hopefully as soon as you get home, getting horizontal, closing your eyes, not engaging in any kind of media. Because, um, yeah. It's rest, which means you're just going to lie there until your your body basically goes from the fight or flight state to the rest digest state. So by doing it, would you call it like a quasi meditation or something? Um, or? I, I I would for sure. It's just it would be a lying down meditation where you'd mm. be focusing on your breath, or if you're choosing mantra or affirmation or something, or just uh, I often just ask people to count their breath, like count your heartbeats in and heartbeats out, so that the talking mind has something to say, because uh, it needs something to say, otherwise it's gonna talk about something else. Right. Um, uh, until you basically hit that uh, nice sort of, you know, happy meditative space of, oh, I think I just fell asleep where I wasn't thinking for minutes at a time. Would that be as useful as having a nap? Um, the, tri- the, the, the tricky part with napping, in the sense of actually curling up and going to sleep, is again 20-30 minutes is okay, but if you're clinically that close to exhaustion, it's more likely that if you take a nap, you're going to fall asleep for about, about, probably about 90 minutes to an hour or, or two, right? It's right at like 90 minutes to about 112 minutes, that's technical, but um, if you do that, now it's going to be harder for you to get into the normal kind of sleeper than when you're actually sleeping. Mm. So um, you said something about when you come home. Mm-hmm. So having your life doing your sort of thing, this is the kind of thing that you'd say doing at the end of the day as opposed to the beginning of the day? Um, the 20-minute rest? Yeah, I wouldn't try resting in the morning because that's when your cortisol levels are naturally really high anyway. So you're not going to. it's going to be a restless kind of rest. But... I have many, many people do this because I demand that they try it. Um, so imagine you're frazzled. You come home, you've got kids, you've got your partner, you've got chores to do, you got to make supper, clean up supper, make lunches for tomorrow, do the laundry, 
<clears throat> or whatever, you know, or you've got, you've got a, you know, you come home and uh, somebody else is taking care of those things and now you're on the computer getting your third jobs, you know, work done or whatever. Um, the interaction you're going to have with your family is going to be probably mostly around the experience of impatience. And that starts to build up habits. You know, it's mom that's always impatient and grumpy and short, or it's dad, or it's both, or and that becomes the way you, as a human being, and also your nervous system as the regulatory sort of uh, hard drive of your life. Every time you come home, if you're projecting another impatient, frustrating, you know, frantic evening of things to do after an eight, nine, ten hour day of getting stuff done, hopefully not with a commute. We're so lucky to love what we do with like. We have five traffic lights in the whole city. <laughs> but anyway, you know, so again, it's really about how your nervous system predicts your day. You wake up, you know, maybe it's coffee, it's, you know, commute, work, commute, home, and then five hours of, you know, got no sort of reality TV, if you will. Facebook. Facebook <laughs> or something. Whereas if you come home, I don't know, give everyone a little snuggle or something like that and then go lie down 20-25 minutes baseline your metabolism get back up and come back out of your room and all of a sudden you're like oh I actually love my family and would love to make a real big salad and spend the extra time you know doing whatever to make a really nice meal and have some time to really sit down and like talk to your kids about what their experiences are instead of going yeah great whatever Leave me alone. <laughs> you know, when you say that, the, the idea of lying down, the, the image that came to my mind when you said somebody coming out of the room after doing that, um, self-love uh, or being very, um, you know, grounded or centered or just not as frazzled, just mm -hmm. not, you know, the gerbil got off of the treadmill. That's the idea. Yeah. Wow. And um, so that's, that's one thing, I mean, mm -hmm. the 20-minute lie down. Yeah, that, 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 that would be my go-to for anybody to just prove to themselves and to me or other clinicians involved in their case that they are willing to recognize that their metabolism and how they use their energy has to change and it has to be consistent and they have to be committed so that as they actually start taking things to improve their health in the sense of medicine, um, we can all monitor that more carefully because... You know, some of these things may be, may be overstimulating. A person comes home and they try and do their 20-minute reset, and they can't. Their fidgety is, is, you know, all get out because we haven't really tweaked their supplements to the point where uh, they support both rest and, you know, being energized. So the idea of uh, the lie-down and mm -hmm. supplements and that sort of thing, this is certainly something that needs some kind of... Uh, medical support yep. or um, and would, would, would mainstream medicine be able to support somebody who's got medical well usually mainstream medicine at this point is giving you an antidepressant uh, probably an erectile dif uh, dysfunction drug um, maybe you're on hormone replacement therapy um, you know all kinds of things you know probably on painkillers uh, sleeping pills uh, yeah, 70, I think it's 78% of people diagnosed with depression are actually experiencing adrenal fatigue. Wow. Because they're just clinically exhausted. And so that means that the uh, traditional allopathic Western medicine perspective on um, health and well-being isn't that healthy. 
Well, I, I think I'm going to brand the pharmaceutical term. <laughs> yeah, you said that before in one of the previous podcasts, for sure. Yeah, because that's, that's what they do. I mean, and they're great at it. They save lives every five seconds. Their job is that part of medicine. You know, they're like the referee for the worst part of what we do to ourselves. Mm-hmm. When you want actually health care, you have to see someone who actually is concerned about, you know, health instead of what's your diagnosis. It's an emergency. Take this drug or we're chopping that out. Yeah. And um, who would be the, the person that uh, somebody would see? Like, would they actually, if someone, if someone identifies themselves as having uh, adrenal fatigue, mm-hmm. um, who's the support person that they would go to? Well, my recommendation, because I am one, would be a functional medicine clinician or practitioner, uh, just because we have really, really great lab work in the sense of assessing exactly where things are at. Um, if, if we're assessing adrenal processes and um, your health is way more complicated than what we're seeing on those lab tests, then we can actually do subsequent lab tests to track down the actual root cause in your health as to what the biggest source of stress is. I mean, a lot of people, and I don't want to go too far afield here, their cause of adrenal fatigue is a gut infection. You mean digestion? Yeah. Wow. All disease starts in the gut. <laughs> it doesn't problem. mean that everybody with adrenal fatigue has a gut infection. It just means if you don't know the root cause of the distress in your physiology, you're sort of swatting at flies. And, and the adrenal thing, it's sort of the obvious place to start, which is sort of like how much damage have you done to the root of your metabolism? And it's not that you've done it like you're bad and you should be punished for being unwell. It's like how far has that gone? And after you've got that sort of assessed and you're trying to get things to improve. If things don't seem to be improving predictably, then we have to start assessing other very likely causes of, of distress within your body. A functional medicine practitioner would be able to identify, you know, through tests and that sort of stuff, the, mm-hmm. the physiology of what's yeah. not actually working. Would that same person be able to support them to learn meditation or I, I would growth? say probably 75% 80% of functional medicine people um, have other kind of clinical backgrounds uh, which would include those kind of uh, kinds of support and guidance maybe 20 25% of people doing functional medicine um, their primary training is just using lab tests right but I, I mean there's a few different schools of functional medicine out there and I there's probably only one that I don't, don't really know intimately. Um, and every one of the ones that I'm familiar with, you know, it's it's all about lifestyle. If you're not doing everything, including exercise, meditation, proper sleep hygiene, obviously diet and, and other things, and the supplements are about as, I don't know. The relationship is no different than taking a pharmaceutical. You're just assuming the magic pill is going to make everything go away. Right. And <coughs> when the root cause really is the fact that you work for a an idiot <laughs> <laughs> and you should quit your job yeah, that happens <laughs> and you didn't see you didn't hear me just say quit your job <laughs> I'm not the medical <laughs> professional here on this podcast yeah um, what did we miss I mean it's been fairly comprehensive the whole idea of adrenal fatigue well now I just want to get into the kind of weirder bit okay and so it's, it's before you do that okay. can you sort of encapsulate and recap what we've talked about so far sure so um, main thing to be aware of is there's your hypothalamus pituitary and adrenal glands, the radio operator, the cowboy and the horse. And that's basically the metaphor for how much pressure your body is under all of the time. 
to get things going and how your body actually maintains that system. And anywhere along the line of those things can go off, which I'll come back to quickly. Uh, there's four stages in my experience to adrenal fatigue with some outlying weird things that can happen. Um, stage one is when you're aroused to the, the fray of life. Stage two is when you're kind of running out of gas. Stage three is when your body is uh, finding different tricky ways to have one system take care of another system. Uh, and we call it adrenal resistance or adaptive resistance, and that can go on for usually over a decade. Uh, and then you hit the sort of stage, stage four classical adrenal fatigue or exhaustion, which usually looks clinically like chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, chronic complex autoimmune stuff, because you've, you've taken things as far as they can go. Uh, you can become hormonally catabolic. You've only got so much base molecules like cholesterol that make every other hormone in your body. If you keep telling your, your physiology that you need to have more cortisol than your you know, genetics remembers in a million years, uh, your physiology assumes that you're the brain. You know that that's what you've got to do. You're smart enough, so we'll, we'll build in extra plumbing that can deplete you in other ways. Hmm. And so that uh, brings one, once they're tapped out, running on fumes, mm -hmm. to, as we just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, to someone who's uh, adept at identifying that and dealing with it through supplementation and perhaps meditation or alternative mm -hmm put that in air quotes well, I don't think they're alternative but <laughs> for most people they think sitting down for 20 minutes or lying down for 20 minutes maybe a form of alternative style of, of health um, so we're, we're up to speed with what we've talked about so far and you wanted to cover next well just quickly that um, you're typically going to be asked to take uh, adaptogens which are uh, nutritional compounds uh, herbs and things that either sort of boost things that are uh, depleted or sort of sedate things that are overexcited. That's why we call them adaptogens because they kind of, for whatever magical reason, can adjust things, you know, in the sense of like yin or yang in Chinese medicine towards the middle. Uh, you're often going to be taking um, licorice uh, extracts uh, because it has a compound in it that extends the half-life of cortisol, which means now you're uh, your brain gets the sense that you have more cortisol in your your body than you have in the past. Uh, so your your that hypothalamus pituitary thing is less demanding for the horse. It's less uh, stimulating for your adrenals to keep producing adrenaline. Uh, then we get into all kinds of cofactors uh, that affect your adrenals directly, which are like you know vitamin B five and B six and B twelve and zinc and magnesium and stuff like that. But when it gets more interesting to me. From there is that there's a thing called your periventricular nucleus. I think I've said that right. PVN anyway. We'll just call it PVN for <laughs> the sake that I may have said that wrong. Um, it's this neurological thing between the hypothalamus and pituitary. And um, you know, in the metaphor of the radio to the the cowboy, there's a lot of things that can get uh, mixed messages on the radio. That that structure between those two glands in your brain. Uh, if it doesn't have the cofactors it needs, um, if you have any kind of neurodegeneration and inflammation, which obviously happens if you're running on you know adrenaline for 15 years, um, that's actually often the root cause for many many people. Is it's all in your head, right? You have to fix the the imbalance in the brain, otherwise uh, it's still um, sending mixed messages to the cowboy and the horse, right? And then that gets subtle and tricky, and you really have to. Uh, 
uh, that's where you have to start getting into the neurology of, of, of the brain and, and stuff like that. And there's not a, that's, that, I'd say there's some uh, functional medicine people who are, are really dialed in with neurology and, and some less so. Uh, it's, it's a funny thing uh, with, with a lot of doctors, they're either, we call it neck down or neck up. You know, because if you're a neurologist, everything's in your head. <laughs> if you're not a neurologist, everything's below your head. Right. So getting into the neurology of that uh, is important if you're a person concerned about this. So if you're working with someone in, in, with respect to your particular adrenal fatigue and they're not addressing, assessing, and, and working with that part of your brain, that's a huge missed opportunity. And you might want to ask them to take a course on neurology just to, to catch up on that or get a hold of someone like me or other people who have that training and there's another thing in in the brain that's essential to correct itself that's a brain derived neurotrophic factor or basically the stuff your brain builds to repair itself (laughs) and there's two ways to improve that and that's so important one is basically high intensity exercise and this is a tricky thing with people with adrenal fatigue because they may have to wait until they have enough gas in the tank from supplements diet 20 minutes rest and all the other things that, that we would get them to do before safely uh, or before doing high intensity interval training would be safe for them. And this is going to be a little bit of a long podcast. I hope, hopefully, I hope you'll be able to do this in less than five minutes. But when you're doing high intensity exercise uh, to the point where you're gasping and you can't talk, and that's sort of the, the definition, um, you run into this unique opportunity where your brain actually has to release something called nitric oxide um, in, in more abundance. And that actually increases the, the uh, BDNF, or brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Um, and and that, that's, that's sort of the rub, right? You're, you're too tired to exercise, especially exercise intensely, and then your brain can't repair itself. So, oops. Mm. And this is, again, the thing. If you, if you get to a certain level of burnout, it's like the universe is like, okay, you know, if it's organized intelligently, which it seems to be, it's telling you, you just need to lie down until you're so bored and, you know, energized to get up. <laughs> you know, it might be months of, okay, no exercise for you until it's time. But when you get into the point where you have the energy and it's safe to exercise, for the brain part, you have to exercise in a very particular way, which is, you know, at least five minutes of, you know, whatever you want to do, if it's burpees or sprints up a hill or something like that. Uh, the other opportunity to improve the BDNF part of your brain, uh, which again is going to repair the PVN, which is often the root cause of all this stuff because it's been entrenched in your nervous system for 15 years, is uh, we call intermittent fasting, which is caloric restriction, um, you know, fast one day a week. Fasting was something we talked about, uh, but why in a, in a podcast, uh, why dieting doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I've done off and on for years mm-hmm. um, and I've got a few friends who just can't fathom um, okay you had lunch yesterday but you're not eating breakfast today you had sorry you had lunch yesterday you didn't eat dinner and you're not eating breakfast today and you're only eating again at lunch like how do you do that don't you like get hungry or something and I don't yeah well I mean it's it's I think an important thing to recognize in the sense of evolutionary medicine, which is, I'm a big fan of that, uh, if you're not doing things that reflect what your genetics, epigenetics, you know, digestive system and everything have been doing for the last, I don't know, three million years, it's kind of like you've decided to poke evolution in the eye and say, ha ha, I'm smarter than you. <coughs> hmm. 
and that doesn't usually bode well for anybody. So from an evolutionary perspective, there's been many times throughout any uh, year that all, almost all of our species would have been calorically restricted, if not fasting, if not actually in a famine. Um, I mean, I grew up in the bush up north, and we actually called spring hungry time because you got a root cellar, and you know there's eleven feet of snow, and you're like, well, <laughs> guess we're gonna, you know, there's no mangoes in here, and and, and, and all, all the deer and everything are so skinny, and <laughs> you're just like, it just seems it's ugly. Uh, and this is from a native point of view. It's actually a better idea to not eat the deer in the spring, so that when you finally hunt them in the fall, they're actually worth eating. Because mm. if you eat them in the spring, you're definitely not going to be eating them in the fall because you they're dead. <laughs> yeah. So uh, fasting one day a week, if that's a good idea, and for some people deep into the pit of adrenal exhaustion, that's too risky because of the blood sugar issues. Which I think that'll have to be another podcast just on insulin you know, insulin and insulin resistance and rebound and all the things that go wrong. And we'll have to try and make sure we tie it back into this one. But uh, that that's actually probably huger for most people uh, that are somewhere between normal health and um, moderately poor health is it's almost always going to be about blood sugar. So fast one day a week, or you can do intermittent fasting where you only have lunch and supper. And you try and have enough calories with lunch and supper to make sure you're not actually in any way starving or not, not getting the, the food you need. But you're trying to create a period of time where your body's in a fasting state. And if your body's in a fasting state for enough hours, consistently enough, then that brain or a neurotropic factor wakes up. And I mean, I'll put this in kind of a goofy uh, image, but imagine that the universe gives you the intelligence you need to solve the problems you need. Okay. Right, that's yeah, some magical thing, you know. <laughs> and now you're really sick, right? And or now you're starving, right? Probably more important to focus on starving. So now you're starving. It, it probably is a good time for you to be as creative and crafty and, and uh, aware of your environment as possible. So that might be kind of a, a funny way of kind of um, uh, reminding people that. You know, being hungry isn't bad for you. In fact, being hungry makes you smarter because you need to be smarter to stop being hungry. Back in the day when you couldn't just dial up the pizza guy or whatever. <laughs> um, the way I see that um, for myself around fasting, um, I mean, if you've done any kind of work, uh, like working in a restaurant <laughs> or something like that, at some point, you know, you have to close the door and you got to clean the place up, right? At some point, you just got to say, uh, we're closed for the next couple hours. It's like my restaurants do that all the time. They have a busy breakfast, they have a busy lunch, they close for a couple hours before they reset for dinner because they got to clean up all the crap and reset and chop and prep and do a whole bunch of stuff. And I've always thought that that's what I do when I fast. It's like I give my body to digest whatever it was I ate up until that point and to clean up and to clean out mm -hmm. if, if fasting does anything. <laughs> you know, as gross as it sounds, I have really good <laughs> bowel movements after <laughs> fasting. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all about your poop. Yeah. So I think the one last thing I want to bring back to this, because uh, mm. I know this is getting kind of long in the teeth, but so you've got your uh, PVN, which is the structure between your hypothalamus and, and pituitary, and if that's uh, garbled in any way, nothing is going to get better uh, in the long term with your adrenals. If you don't have enough of the BDNF, that neurotrophic factor, you, your brain can't repair itself uh, properly and again if there's any brain rooted neurologically rooted dysfunction around adrenal glands which is almost always the case 
echo, echo, echo. <laughs> um, insert really big music now. That <laughs> um, those things have to be addressed, and uh, very quickly. If you're hormonally catabolic, which means you're not getting enough DHEA, growth hormones, testosterone, estrogens, and other things like that, your progesterone may be low because it's being stolen to become cortisol. Those hormones are essential to the function of your brain. Your body can't uh, properly use neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, and other things that have so much to do with your subjective sense of yourself if your steroidal hormones, your sex hormones, are depleted or out of balance. And maybe we'll have to do a pet. Uh, I can't wait. We should do a pet, a pet podcast on neurology. <laughs> It'd be so fun. <laughs> have to do some fun basic ones be between them. But uh, anyway, if you don't have the right kind of juice for your brain, it could. And this is where the feedback loop kind of comes back. Your brain can't repair itself or run itself in a healthy enough way for you to subjectively feel good about yourself to, to actually keep positive choices uh, gaining momentum. Right. So sometimes it's just a waiting game of, okay, we're going to support this. Sometimes we're going to give people actually uh, bioidentical hormones to support their hormones if they're really low. Not just because we want them to have a great sex life or maybe have babies. It's because you need that for your brain. Because mm -hmm. once your brain gets better, the wiring for your adrenals can eventually get better. Because it isn't about the horse. It's either the cowboy or it's the person on the radio telling the cowboy to keep kicking the horse. It's good to keep t taking care of your horse, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that needs to get better for all the, the background signals to work. And that's where you really need to be working with somebody who's beyond just checking basic horm like basic lab tests. Because um, at some point you're going to realize that's not enough. Sometimes it's enough. I mean, if you're not that far into it and you, you get the right supplements and you change your lifestyle, that, that, that might do it. But if not... It's, it's time to hook up with a functional medicine neurology person and fix your brain. I think that answers the question, is adrenal fatigue real? <laughs> yeah, it's just not about adrenaline. <laughs> Or as much about your adrenals as, as we've been led to believe. Yeah, wow. Uh, it's been a very comprehensive almost hour. Yeah, about an hour, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, if, if you're still here and you're still listening, I'm sure this is uh, all good information for you, so... Um, you've been listening to Fusion Health Radio, talking to Dr. Michael Smith today about adrenal fatigue and how real it really is. Um, what's up for the next podcast? Next one is to just check in if, uh, given your experience of your health, you feel that going gluten-free is for you. Wow. Adrenal fatigue to gluten. Gluten. Yeah. yeah. We're, gonna, yeah we're having a bit of a geek out theme for sure, but... But we'll come up with something really fluffy and fun for the next one. <laughs> okay. more, more cowboys and, and horses or something like that. I'm Anthony Sana. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. This has been Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast. Uh, tune in next time. Uh, we'll see you talking about should everyone go gluten-free? It's going to be a good topic, hopefully a little bit more condensed. Um, You can uh, follow us on iTunes. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. And we're on Stitcher now, too. And on Stitcher. Wow. Uh, we're moving up in the world. <laughs> uh, thanks, folks, and we'll see you in the next podcast. Cook well, eat well, and be well. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.